Please raise your hand if you want to borrow a Bible this morning. The ushers will pass one out to you. You can just leave it in the pew when you're finished. One of the encouraging aspects of our church, Evanston Bible Fellowship, as I've said many times before, is that we function uh, like a teaching hospital. We equip and train the next generation of leaders within the church, and we send them out all over the world. Part of what this means practically, just practically speaking, uh, when I was uh, interviewing, candidating with this church eight years ago, one of the things the elders talked to me about, that the precedent that the church has set is that they, they said, you can only preach 40 Sundays a year. We're going to free up these other 12 for, for, for equipping and training of other uh, preachers and teachers. And this is an opportunity where we have a variety of, of, of them come up here and preach the Word of God. And this morning... Uh, is going to be an encouragement as we get to hear from Glenn Butner. Glenn is a gifted man of God, a very intelligent man of God. He's, he's married um, to a wonderful wife, Lydia. Glenn is a graduate of Duke Divinity School, and he leads one of our ethos communities. In fact, he's also written our Advent devotional, which you can get online at the city. So, Glenn, come on up here and bring the word of God. Well, good morning. Um, it's a real privilege to be up here this morning. Uh, and I was really excited when several months ago, Jason approached me and said, so I hear you're an Advent guy. What do you think about coming and preaching a sermon during the middle of Advent? And maybe while you're at it, you can try and put together an Advent Bible study. So I was thrilled. And then several weeks later, Jason sent me an email that actually included my assigned text. And for a brief moment, I thought I was some kind of fall guy. Um, because the passage I get to bring to you to wish you a Merry Christmas this morning involves talking about the government and taxes, as well as explaining to you why your marriage is not as important as you think it is. Um, so I was a little taken aback, um, but as I began to study it, and as I looked into this passage, I realized that I wasn't a fall guy. Um, in fact, I was actually given a wonderful opportunity. Um, the text that I'm going to bring to you this morning actually represent the culmination of Jesus interacting with the crowds and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. If you've been attending EBF for a while, you know that for almost a year we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And we have seen Jesus repeatedly teaching the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. He's been proclaiming the need to repent. He has been teaching through parables, through the Sermon on the Mount, and through various dialogues with his disciples in order to explain what it means that this kingdom has come in his person. And today, we're going to be reading passages where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are some of the main opponents that Jesus has developed during this gospel, we're going to see these two groups come to Jesus with the intention of finally proving him wrong. But we're also going to see Jesus taking one last stand and giving them one final offer to believe. And that offer begins in the way that he rebukes them this week and will culminate next week in his final question to them, where he asks who the Messiah is. But when the religious leaders fail to believe, we'll see the Gospel of Matthew change its pace, and Jesus will go directly into seven woes and a discussion of the final judgment before he will finally be crucified. 
But before we can finish this gospel, we have to see this culmination of Jesus' debate with the Sadducees and Pharisees. And that will take place in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. Verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. I think we have to understand this in the context of what's been happening in the Gospel of Matthew. At the end of chapter 21, we see that Jesus has told several parables that very clearly condemn the Pharisees for their blindness and inability to understand what he is teaching. And the Pharisees, once they understand that Jesus is talking about them, instead of repenting, decide that they are going to find a way to catch him in his words and get him arrested. This section represents their great plan, their wonderful way to trap Jesus, because they've developed a trick question. Now, many of you are probably familiar with the idea of a trick question, but just in case you're not, I'll give you a quick example. A good trick question is, have you stopped dealing drugs yet? Now, if you answer yes, then it implies that you used to deal drugs. If you answer no, then you imply that you're still selling drugs. But I, I hope most of you here have actually never trafficked narcotics. I hope most of you have never sold drugs. It's the sort of question that no matter how you answer, you're going to be trapped. And in verse 16, we see the trick question that the Pharisees developed. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you were true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So how is this a trick question? On the surface, it seems pretty simple. Are, are we supposed to pay taxes or not? But this is actually a very loaded question if we understand the historical context of Jesus' time. You see, Rome had invaded close to a century before as a violent, military, oppressive empire. They had conquered Judea. They had suppressed all of the Jewish forces, and they had occupied the area with a large military force. They had cut down on the freedom and rights of the Jews, and in some ways they had been restrictive on worship practices. Now in the background against this oppression, there was one particular radical group of Jews known as the Zealots, who believed that the purpose of the Messiah, that the function of the faithful Jewish people today was to violently overthrow these Roman oppressors. And even if you weren't radical, like a zealot, you probably had some sort of belief that the Messiah would come and in some way would provide political liberation, in some way would help you from this oppression by the Romans. So these zealots and, and people that sympathized with them would be in the crowds and would hear this question. But it's also interesting if you look that the Pharisees and their disciples brought along the Herodians with them. So who are the Herodians? The Herodians actually get their name from a king called Herod the Great, who is in many ways not so great. He's actually famous for trying to kill all of the young children who were born around Bethlehem at the time Jesus was born to stop the Messiah from coming. You see, Herod the Great and his descendants had become a sort of puppet government of Rome. Rome had allowed them to have power over the Jews to collect taxes and to maintain the peace. And in response, Herod and his descendants had to protect the interests of Rome. So the Pharisees think that either Jesus will have to announce that he is the Messiah 
and that, of course, it is wrong to pay taxes to this oppressive government, in which case he'll be immediately arrested by the Herodians. Or they think he'll have to say, no, go ahead and pay your taxes, at which point it will be immediately obvious that he is not the Messiah. He must be someone else, because everybody expects the Messiah to fight against Rome. But verse 18, But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. I think there are actually two levels of meaning going on here. The first level of meaning, if you actually look at the denarius, you look at the Roman coin, there is a picture of one of the Caesars on it, either the current ruling Caesar or somebody who had recently been in power. And if you know anything about Israel, Israel was very opposed to making any sort of carving or drawing or inscription of a human being. And this, wrote, uh, this is based back in the Ten Commandments, uh, where we are taught that we are to have no graven image. The Jews actually interpreted a carving like this to be an idol. And what was even worse is this just wasn't a carving of any person. This was a carving of an emperor of Rome who claimed to be divine. This was a carving that was intended to depict a god. And so any Jew would know that this depiction was not only an idol, it was an idol of a false god and a heretic. And so Jesus is basically saying, look, you Pharisees, these coins aren't righteous anyway. If you're so concerned about being righteous, if you're so concerned about doing what is right, just go ahead and give these idols back to the Romans. We want nothing to do with them. So that's one level of meaning. But I think there's actually something even deeper going on here. And um, if you look look at the text, it says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I think this implies that something actually legitimately is Caesar's. Give to Caesar what belongs to him. And in this, Jesus is saying that in some ways, Caesar does have things that belong to him. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. Nothing happens in the course of history that our God does not allow. And so that means somehow God has put Caesar and really any government in charge for a reason. Really, if God is sovereign... Everything that exists has a meaning and purpose. Think about it. Nothing exists independently from God's will. So he either is actively causing it to happen for his purposes, or he is allowing it to happen because it will still fit in with his larger purposes. If God is really perfect and really in control, there is no such thing as an oops. And we see, if we look at the scriptures, that God does have a plan for governments. It should be on the screen behind you, um, behind me, but we see part of this plan laid out in Romans 13, 1 through 4, where Paul writes to the very people that live in the capital of this Roman Empire. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. 
for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. I know that no government is perfect and that every government will make mistakes, but it seems to me that Paul is pretty clear here that in the big picture, governments play a very clear role in God's plan. Governments are, in part, God's instrument of justice on this earth. And I think if we look back at the history of the Old Testament, we can see where this is actually the case. Going all the way back to one of the earliest priests of the Lord, to Eli, and to his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were serving the Lord at the tabernacle, and they were stealing from the Lord's offerings. And even worse than that, Eli's sons were committing adultery with and at times even raping the women who attended this Holy of Holies. And in the midst of all of this sacrilege and this sin and this lack of justice, God responds through a government and a very unexpected one. He sends the Philistines and their army to defeat Israel in battle and to take the Ark of the Covenant. And as he takes this Ark, he teaches the people that he is withdrawing his presence from such corruption and sin. Later on, as we see the kingdom divided into Israel and Judah, and if you read the prophets, you can see how these kingdoms had turned from the Lord. They were unjust. The rich exploited the poor. The strong exploited the weak. The native exploited the immigrant. And then what did the poor do and the weak do? They did not turn to God. They turned to false gods and sacrificed, even murdered their firstborn children to false gods. God responds to this through governments. First, he sends Assyria as an instrument of judgment against Israel. And later, he sends Babylon as an instrument of judgment against Judah. What we see is that Rome fulfills its place in God's plan. If God is using governments as a mechanism of judgment, Rome certainly fulfilled that purpose. You see, it was a Roman leader... Pontius Pilate, who condemned Jesus to death. And it was Roman soldiers who crucified him and watched him hang there on the cross until he died. This was God's judgment poured out on Jesus Christ, who accepted this judgment on our behalf. Now, the Pharisees and many other first century Jews would stand back and say, There is no way that this oppressive government has anything to do with God's plan. All that we want is just to overthrow the Romans and go back to the way things used to be. Go back to the good old days. But I think this is the Pharisees' mistake. And this is take-home point number one. We have to know that if God is sovereign, everything has a purpose. If God is truly in charge, everything that happens fits into his plan. I think we also need to understand a little bit more the nature of God's judgment. Many of you probably don't realize this, but the last place I preached a sermon was not in a a grand music hall. Uh, It was actually in a prison complex. When I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to serve for a year as a prison chaplain in a federal complex. And while I was there, I got to see a lot of different models of what justice looked like. And I'll never forget the first day I was there, my supervisor, Chaplain Helbig, took me on a tour to the special housing unit. And he would lead me through a two-inch thick steel reinforced door 
and down a small hallway. On either side of me, there were rooms, maybe eight feet by ten feet, with padded walls. And they'd have a small cot built into one side and a toilet in the back corner. The fluorescent lights in the ceiling were on 24 hours a day, and the doors were kept locked and closed, so sound could not travel through them. For maybe 30 hours a week, 30, sorry, excuse me, for maybe 30 minutes a day, um, these prisoners would be allowed to speak through an intercom to somebody on staff who would visit them. And we continued down this hallway through another two-inch thick steel door out into a courtyard. And there were 10-foot-tall concrete walls surrounding this courtyard, topped with razor wire. In the middle of these walls, there were 10-foot-by-10-foot metal cages made with reinforced chain-link fence. And my supervisor told me, the men in this unit are under the penitential model of prison. This is the most extreme form of judgment that our government imposes apart from the capital sentence of death. These men will spend 23 hours a day alone in their cell and one hour a day, weather permitting, outside in these cages. That was an extreme form of judgment. But I also got to work in another prison that, that followed the restorative justice model. It followed the idea of rehabilitation. And the men in this prison would spend every morning going through psychological programs to overcome drug addictions, to overcome aggression, to overcome all of their psychological problems that were causing them to lash out in anger. They spent every afternoon working hard in a factory. At night, they would do, attend programming, often through the religious groups that would proclaim the gospel to them and try and compel them to repent and change. And every aspect of this second prison was designed to restore people so that when they returned to society, they did not kill again, they did not steal again, they did not become addicted to drugs again. I believe when we look at these two different models of prison, we can see that God's form of justice is much more like the second than the first. And I'm not saying there's no place for both of these in prisons. That's a, a huge question. But I am saying that where the special housing unit is an example of judgment and justice, that rarely leads to redemption. In fact, some of the first people that were incarcerated under this model actually went insane. The second model was an attempt always to lead to redemption. And while we are humans and we are imperfect and we cannot always succeed in trying to help someone to change, God is God. And he uses his judgment as an instrument of mercy and grace. So when the Philistines captured the ark, not only did God help them to, not only did God help Israel to repent and to change, but he actually taught the Philistines that he was a mightier God than their false idols. And when Babylon held Israel in captivity for 70 years, there was a great revival and people began turning back to the Lord and they recognized where they had been unjust and where they had been worshiping false gods. And when God poured out his judgment on Jesus Christ through Rome, it was a means of extending grace to the entire world. Through Christ's death, all of us experience life. God's judgment is perfectly restorative. And James 2.13 teaches it well, that mercy triumphs over judgment. What this shows is that not only is God sovereign, but that God sovereignly works through all things for the benefit of us, those who believe. 
This is straight out of Romans 8. If God is sovereign, everything has a purpose. And if God is God, all of his purposes help toward our redemption. Now, in my admittedly very limited experience, I'm still a young guy, I'm not the wisest person in this room by any stretch. But in my limited experience, it seems that there are many Christians who attend church expecting to encounter God, but who go home at the end of each service to a world that they experience as meaningless or purposeless. We have this way where we can go about and we can just divide our lives in half. We have this sacred and secular divide. We cut time in half. Sundays are a time of holiness. Monday through Saturday, Saturday is just drudgery. We have this way that we can go forward and not realize that God is working in all of creation and in all of history to bring about redemption. We worship a God who has created all things, who is at work in all things, and who is redeeming all things. Do you, therefore, seek God in all things? Do you trust God in the middle of whatever is oppressing you? Do you say there must be some purpose even if I do not understand? When the anxieties of this world march into your life like an occupying Roman army, do you stand back and say there is no way that God has anything to do with this? Or do you stand up and say, Lord, help me to understand what you're doing in the middle of my suffering? Jesus, I think, effectively refutes the Pharisees. And he teaches us the first of two important truths. Everything has its purpose. We have to reject nihilism. We have to reject the idea that everything is meaningless. The Pharisees have been set in their place, but the Sadducees think this is a perfect time to come forward and challenge Jesus. Look at verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. We have to notice from the start what the gospel writer clearly teaches us what Matthew tells us. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They aren't really concerned about who's going to be married to whom at the resurrection. They don't believe from the start. Instead, I think the Sadducees are taking this and laying it out as a sort of trump card, a way to demonstrate beyond a doubt that there is no resurrection. After all, take this woman. She has had seven different husbands. Now, when everybody is raised from the dead, are, are we supposed to allow, allow polygamy in heaven? Exactly how many people can we get away with being married with in heaven, the Sadducees think. And this is, in many ways, a direct attack to the teachings of Christ. Christ has spent the entire Gospel of Matthew teaching through parables and through sermons how we are to love one another and love God, and how, in the last day, at the resurrection, God will be there to judge whether or not we have succeeded in this task. So the Sadducees come forward and try and say, this whole idea of judgment and of resurrection doesn't even make sense. Verse 29. But Jesus answered them, 
you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. I think this is interesting. Why does Jesus say that they don't know the power of God? I was reading uh, several commentaries and went back to a really old one written by Matthew Poole, who wrote, There is not only a resurrection of bodies, but of relations. There's not only a resurrection of bodies, but of relations. And I think the Sadducees fail to realize that God is powerful enough that when he raises us from the dead, he can actually recreate the entire cosmos. Verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. At the resurrection, we become like the angels. And the relationship that defines us is not our title, not our social status. It's not our family. It's not our spouse. It's none of these things. The only relationship that defines us is in eternity, will we stand eternally in relationship with God, or in eternity, will we choose to stand away from God? I attended a Christian high school, and uh, a friend of mine found a great way to sort of terrorize any guest speakers that came um, to speak to our classes. Whenever a guest speaker would come, at the end there was always a time for question and answer, and he would raise his hand, and when called on, he would say, you know, I've recently gotten interested in girls, and I just want to know how far is too far. And he would sit back and he would watch while these guest speakers hummed and hawed and squirmed and tried to figure out how to answer this to a a group of ninth grade boys and girls. And finally, someone put him in his place. And they said, son, you're asking the wrong question. The right question isn't how far is too far. The right question is how pure is too pure. See, I think this wise guest speaker finally identified my friend wasn't so much concerned about his relationship with God as he was concerned about his relationship with whatever girl he was pursuing at the moment. His priority was the earthly relationship, and he sought to define how he should relate to God as a result of his earthly priority. I think the same is true in many ways for the Sadducees. Their priority is not their eternal relationship with God at the resurrection. They don't rejoice at that opportunity. Their priority is understanding how they can keep marriage a priority, how they can keep their favored teachings a priority. They don't understand the power of God, that God is the highest relationship that we can have in our lives. Verse 31, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So the Sadducees do not understand the power of God because they do not see how God will restore all things and how he is our most important relationship. But they don't even understand the scriptures. Jesus takes a very simple common phrase from the Old Testament, and he makes his point. It's in the present tense. God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, but he died. Or I was the God of Isaac, but I am no more. God says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
You see, the Sadducees don't only disbelieve in the resurrection. They actually disbelieve in the idea of an eternal life. Like, like many that you probably know, they think that when you die, you die, and it's over, and there's nothing left. But Jesus says, you can't even understand this basic teaching of Scripture. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. If we step back and we look at how Jesus has interacted with the Sadducees, I think we can get our take-home point number two. So the first thing that Jesus has taught is that God is sovereign and everything has a purpose. But just because we can find meaning in everything doesn't mean we should make it our God. Instead, our take-home point number two is that nothing should be elevated so high that its purpose is valued more highly than God is valued. Nothing should be elevated so high that its purpose is valued more highly than God is valued. The Sadducees seem to put marriage as a higher priority than God. I'm wondering if any of us here have any higher priorities than God this morning. I know at times I've been tempted to put my marriage as a higher priority than God. I'm sure none of you have had the same temptation with that as I have because I've married the best woman in the world, but maybe you get a a slight glimpse of what I struggle through. But what do you cling to instead of the Lord? Do you ever miss the great blessings that God has for you in the form of a relationship with him because you're so busy clinging to a smaller blessing? Are you like the child on Christmas who opens the present to play with the box, missing the true gift? Let us not desire anything more than we desire the Lord. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer or an expert in the Old Testament, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So it's Advent. Advent is a time when the church traditionally has set aside a moment to understand the birth of Christ, to understand the incarnation. And so in the middle of my sermon, I'd like to just set aside a moment to say how this relates to Advent and to Christmas. You see, we've been saying that if God is sovereign, everything has a purpose. And I think that these two commandments are in some ways the purpose of humanity. We are supposed to love God with everything that we have, and we are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. But humans, believe it or not, have failed to fulfill their purpose. They have failed to bring glory to God through their love. If you think about it, these two commands sound simple enough, but they're really radical. I'm not just called to love God. I'm called to love God with everything that I have. I actually take my soul and wring out every last drop of love that I can possibly get from it, and then I offer it to God. I have never loved anything anywhere near that much. Or the call to love our neighbor as ourselves. There have been many radical interpretations of this through history, and I'll just share one. An early church father from around the third century taught, if you truly loved your neighbor as much as you loved yourself, you would never allow your neighbor to have less than you have. You would treat whatever you have as an equal possession with your neighbor and yourself. 
Now, I don't want to go into the pros and cons of a welfare state, and I'm not endorsing that we overthrow the government and start a communism. But what I am saying is, if you truly look at your heart, chances are you lack that generosity. I know I do. I have a hard enough time giving $10 to somebody in need, much less half of what I own. These are difficult commandments. We have not fulfilled them. But Jesus Christ was born in the flesh as a human being, and he fulfilled these perfectly. Jesus loved God with all that he had, and he loved his neighbor as himself. And through that, Jesus, as a human being who was also God, was able to fulfill the purpose of humanity. We've talked about judgment. We've talked about how through the cross, Jesus dealt with the consequences of sin. And through judgment, mercy triumphed. But through the incarnation, I think Jesus deals with the reality of sin. When we are trapped in our inability to fulfill our purpose in loving God and neighbor, Jesus fulfilled it for us. And when we, through faith, follow Christ, I think we are transformed into his likeness. We get that much closer to being able to love God with all that we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves. I think that's how this relates to Advent. But now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Um, I've been making an argument that if God is sovereign, everything has a purpose. But if God is God, nothing has a higher purpose than God. And I think these two commandments sum this up very clearly. Now, the lawyer comes to Jesus. The expert in the Old Testament says, what is the greatest commandment? And that's in the singular. But Jesus answers with two commandments. Both of them are essential for us to understand what it means to be a Christian. And the first one Jesus affirms that nothing should be valued more highly than God. We are to love God with everything. We don't give God 60% of our heart and give 20% to cars and 20% to our job. We give God everything that we have. We reject idolatry. But I think when we are told to love our neighbor, we also learn the other take-home truth that I have taught. If God is God, everything has a purpose. There's a meaning in this world and the world has value. To love God is first and foremost to love him for who he is. But I think to love God is also to love him for what he is doing in the world. God's actions, his sovereign plans, are directed toward the redemption of people, of you and me. And his sovereign plan is a manifestation of his love for human beings. And so we, in loving God, are called to love those whom God loves, our neighbors, the application of this is something so fundamental, it is called the summary of the entire law and the prophets. In another way, it summarizes the entire Christian life. On the one hand, Christians are to renounce the entire world, forsake everything, and turn and love God with all that we have. Put all of our trust in him, all of our faith in him. Though my spouse may die, I will persevere because I love God. And I'm not looking forward to eternal life because I will see her again. I am looking forward to eternal life because I will see God more clearly. Though my government crumbles and though outside forces may oppress my nation, they may kill my family and my friends, they may take away my most basic rights, I still have faith in God because I trust him. And he is my highest source of value. I do not trust a political party to bring about salvation. I do not base my identity and my hopes and my dreams in a relationship with a spouse or a friend or a family member or a job. My hope and my trust is in my God whom I love. 
And so in one moment, we as Christians can let go of the entire world and everything and everyone in it and say that even when it all turns into dust, God is enough. Do not love the world, but love what our God is doing in the world. We love God, and so we let go of everything, and we run to God, leaving the world behind and renouncing it. But the funny thing is, when we come to know our God, we see that our God is a God who is at work in the world. He is active sovereignly in the world, and everything has a purpose according to his plan. And since we love our God, we also love what he is doing in the world. Suddenly, we can embrace the world again. We embrace it in a very new way. We don't cling to it as an idol. Instead, we look to the world in a way that is an act of worship to God. We love what God is doing in the world, and we love our neighbors who were created in God's image. We recognize God's sovereignty and his purpose for everything, even a government we may hate. We understand the blessing that God has given us in marriage, even if it is only a fleeting joy that will fade when we no longer need a symbol of our marriage to Christ, because Christ is standing before us. The Christian simultaneously cares the least about the world and yet receives the most joy from it by discerning God's actions in the world. The Christian simultaneously cares the least about the world and yet receives the most joy from it by discerning God's actions in the world. We see this in the teachings of Paul. It should be on the screen behind me. In, on the one hand, in Philippians, Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul counts everything as loss. He lets go of the world. He offers all of his love to God. And then he turns around and writes something completely different in 1 Thessalonians. He says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus in you. Paul forsakes the world and turns to God, but then he does not simply write the world off. He rejoices in whatever happens in the world. He gives thanks in all circumstances because he sees God at work through the world. Jesus Christ taught this himself in Matthew 16. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we cling to our lives, we cannot keep our grasp on them. But when we let our lives go, we find that God gives them back to us through the back door. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling love toward the world. You're feeling at peace, feeling like everything is working out right. Maybe you're finding your satisfaction in the daily distractions of television or video games or shopping trips. Or maybe you actually are finding some deep happiness in good family relationships that God has given you. Maybe you're basing that happiness on your title or your success or your position. I'm here to call you today in the same way that Christ called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just let it go. Let it go. Only God is God. God is to be the chief object 
of our love and desires, and only God will satisfy. On the other hand, maybe you're here today and you're feeling bitter toward the world. You're finding it meaningless, and try as you might, you can't understand how God can be working through what you're experiencing. Maybe you're despairing over a tedious job, or maybe you're suffering with some kind of uh, mental or physical illness. Maybe there's an agonizing family situation that you can't work through, and you just don't understand. But I'm here today to remind you that God is sovereign, and there is some purpose for what you are experiencing. By God's grace, you can still know joy. I know this sounds trite for some 20-something guy to stand up behind a pulpit and tell you, oh, God is at work in whatever you're experiencing. My prayer isn't so much that you'll believe me when I tell you these things, as it is that you will experience it yourself, and through that, learn to truly appreciate and love the Lord our God. Don't just believe me because of what I say. Strive to have God show you what he has sometimes shown me in the midst of my suffering when I am willing to listen to him. And when you learn to experience God in this way, when you learn to offer him everything that you have and to see him sovereignly at work, even in the middle of whatever is happening in your life, then I think you will know what it is like to live life as a Christian, to have faith in God and love him with everything, to experience God at work for your benefit in everything. And in the middle of that, continue to trust the Lord and proclaim his great name. The Sadducees and the Pharisees just never got it. They had that last chance to let everything go and follow God. I hope that if you're here today and you haven't got it yet, you'll take a moment just to think about these things. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for being a God who satisfies us completely, Lord. Lord, help me to love you more so that I am less of a hypocrite when I stand up and teach these things. Lord, help others to love you as well, Lord. Give us an eye that discerns where you are working in the world for our benefit, even when it seems like you are not. And give us the faith to wait until our eyes can see. Lord, I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.